On this episode of the Resetter Podcast, I bring you Maggie and Brad Jones. And the discussion you're about to hear is the lifestyle tools you need to not only prevent cancer, but as you will hear, you can actually use much of the information that we discussed to really turn a cancer diagnosis around. Now, let me give you a little bit of background on Maggie and Brad. You're gonna, you'll hear Maggie's story. She had stage four cancer and used some really interesting lifestyle tools that helped her overcome that. You'll hear that journey continues today. And they became so passionate about what's not being shared in the world, about the control we have in turning cancer diagnoses around and the control we have in preventing cancer. And they wanted to bring it to the world. So they actually launched the first virtual conference on cancer that is dedicated to metabolic lifestyle and nutritional therapies that we can all use to prevent and treat cancer. And Maggie and I had met last fall, and she had invited me on to this summit to talk about fasting. And we just struck up a mutual friendship and respect for each other's work. And as many of you have probably heard me talk about, I have had the honor of sitting at the deathbed of four patients who were transitioning out of this world due to cancer overturning their bodies. And that, that experience really left a deep place in my heart for helping us all understand what control we have in making sure we don't get a diagnosis of cancer. And also, what control do we have if we do get a diagnosis of cancer? Because there's so much that's not being said. And that is what you are about to hear. You're about to hear all the tools you have in a toolbox to be able to prevent and treat cancer. And I can't think of anyone better to deliver this to you than Maggie and Brad. So if you resonate with any of the information that we discuss, please send this out into the world. We are powerful self-healing creatures. And when it comes to cancer, there is absolutely a rhythm that you can find with your lifestyle to make sure that you don't keep making more cancer cells. Regardless of a diagnosis, regardless of where you are in prevention, there is a toolbox for you. And Maggie and Brad will deliver that to you in this conversation. So as always, enjoy. Hey, Dr. Mindy here, and welcome to season four of the Resetter Podcast. Please know that this podcast is all about empowering you to believe in yourself again. If you have a passion for learning, if you're looking to be in control of your health and take your power back, this is the podcast for you. Enjoy. Hey, Resetters, as we step into the new year, I am so thrilled to invite you on an extremely transformative journey with me in my Reset Academy. So check this out. If you're ready to kickstart your fasting and health journey, which I know so many of you have reached out to us and asked how you customize a fasting lifestyle for you, my Reset Academy is the absolute best place to be. 
So here's what you get in the academy, and I like to think of it in terms of a complete picture. So imagine being surrounded by people who understand your journey, who are passionate for fasting, who want to lift you up and will support you every step of the way. My academy is not just me, my team, but it is an incredible group of people that are all dedicated to building fasting lifestyles and supporting each other in it. This is why I created the Reset Academy. So when you join, you gain access to all the exclusive calls where my team and I share the latest insights, we answer your burning questions, and we guide you towards your health goals. That's not it. We didn't stop there. By becoming a member, you're not just investing in a membership, but you're investing in yourself. I am such a fan of setting you up to win this year. And my academy is the best place I know to do that. I want to keep you focused. I want you to customize this for you. And I want you to succeed at your health goals this year. End of story. So if you're ready to unlock your fullest potential and embrace a fasting lifestyle, join me. If it feels good, join me. And let's make this year an incredible year for us all. So all you got to do is go visit drmindypels.com slash reset academy to become a member. I can't wait to welcome you. I can't wait to see you on the Zoom calls. I can't wait to be in community with you. And most importantly, let's get your health goals handled and let's do this together. It's so much better together. Together. So that's drmindypels.com slash reset academy. Excited to see you there. Let me just start off by saying welcome to the Resetter podcast. I just am really excited for this conversation. Hey, we're just excited to talk to you. Thanks for having us, Mindy. Thank you. Of so course. You again. <laughs> yeah, agreed, agreed. Here's where I want to start off this conversation. And I and I don't know if you actually know this about me, but um, I have sat at, uh, gone through the cancer journey intensively with four of my patients um, and actually sat at their bedside days before they died. And um, it really moved me. Um, I I learned a lot. Uh, One woman in particular, her name is Lanny. My first book was completely dedicated to her. Um, And she taught me so much because she was given a cancer diagnosis where, or a prognosis where they gave her three months to live. And she turned it into 11 years. And I learned so much walking that journey with her. So I want to start off with a couple of like really interesting thoughts that I gained from that experience. And one is, is cancer preventable? Can we actually prevent it from happening? Is and I'll that let a question? <laughs> yeah, that's it. That, that's a big question. I'm just going to let you all take that um, because I, it's one I asked that whole 11 years. I just really wanted to grab my head around that concept. Can we prevent it? I think that's so important to ask. And honestly, more research needs to be done. But the one thing that I've been convinced of the course of our production and my personal studying is that your DNA is not your destiny. So regardless mm. of what your cancer genes say, maybe you have a BRCA mutation or P152 mutation, that doesn't mean you're going to get cancer. Your epigenetics, mm. your lifestyle, that's what really makes the difference. Um as for there are certain genetic mutations, very, very small percentage of people have them that do lead to cancer, um, usually not terminal. But I think 
But you sum up what we need to focus on in the future is can it be completely prevented? Once we understand the cause fully, that's going to lead to those interventions. Of cancers, 5% about are hereditary. And mm. um, if you have like one of the most, the BRCA gene, that's one of the the, the the most you know commonly known. commonly yeah common uh common genes that cause cancer um you have about a 50 50 chance and that's the of of that that gene you know going bad i and, do want to emphasize on BRCA though it used to be a 40 percent chance you know yeah. 70 years ago with you know a different diet different lifestyle and now it's up to 70 percent of people and that's not because the wow. gene changes but it has a lot to do with the environment that we live in yeah so yeah, your genes, uh, yeah, basically only 5% of people have this, you know, of cancers even. So that's like 2.5% of people have a chance of, hered you know, her inheriting a cancer. So yeah, yeah. is cancer preventable? The if the 95% of cancers come from diet and lifestyle, I would think so. So, so here's what's really interesting. Now, in this journey that I took with Lanny, she actually came into my office, like, you know, a lot of women asking for help for her child, which I think is always so interesting. And she was sitting in my waiting room. She had just gone through radiation and chemo. She had no hair. You could tell that she was, she was going through cancer treatment. And at, when I dove into chatting with her about what education she got, now this was, tw you know, 20 years ago. This is a long time ago, or maybe a little, like maybe about 15 years ago. I said, what did they teach you about how you got cancer? And she looked at me and she said, what do you mean how I got cancer? I, they just told me I had it, it was genetic, and here was my treatment. And so I started going down a path with her. The very first thing I taught her was how to eat. And we, I actually took her to a supermarket. We went into the supermarket and I taught her how to read a label. And here she was at the time, like in her early 40s, learning how to read a label for the first time. And at one point she turned to me and she said, wait a second, and we were in a store called Safeway. That was literally the grocery store's name. Sick. And she's like, are you telling me that there are foods that are in this store that are not safe, even though the store is <laughs> called Safeway? Yeah. And I was like, yep. Yep. Uh, that's what I'm telling you. So do you think that food is the first place we can start when we look at what's building cancer and how we can prevent it? For some people, that is the easiest, most successful way to start. Uh, I think what you consume and what you don't consume and when you consume it are all really important. But from the beginning, especially in today's society, yeah, just having a little more control and mindfulness about what's going into your body and making sure that it's something that's going to be healing to you and not detrimental. Right. I mean, where do we start with that? So I know that you, you know, you've gotten really into fasting, um, which is amazing. I had a beautiful conversation yesterday with Dr. Dale Bredesen about the, the importance of metabolic switching for preventing Alzheimer's. I'm starting to feel like fasting, metabolic switching, glucose management is the is, is are the keys to preventing everything. Would you agree on that when it comes to cancer? Yeah, I think there's more even that can be involved, but definitely your diet is so important. And for me personally, when I was diagnosed with my terminal stage four lung cancer, non-smokers lung cancer, which all the doctors were like, oh, you're one of the unlucky ones. I had to take a long, hard look at how I was treating my body with what I put into it. And I wasn't just unlucky. Like I have a metabolic genetic mutation, but this is something that I developed over time because I feel that I wasn't treating my body well. Um, I 
thought I had the healthy standard American diet with whole grains and long, long fat dairy, lean meats, things like that. Uh, but I, I just wasn't looking deep enough. And I had a lot of stress. And I had quite the alcohol enthusiasm, drinking a bottle of wine a night to deal with that. So when I yeah. finally put my health first and saying, like, let's, my body is screaming out. It's decided it doesn't even want to be alive anymore. I had six to eight months to live. Let's make wow. those six to eight months exactly what my body needs and to start paying attention to it. And these days, it's not about like, oh, trying to live as long as possible, but trying to have the best life that I possibly can. And I cannot do that without paying attention to my body and other healing factors like fasting, uh, stress reduction, mindfulness, medication, breath work, all these things for me personally yeah. work so important uh, in conjunction. But it all started with diet. <laughs> You know what's so interesting to me is that there is there are like foundational behaviors that we should be doing through lifestyle. Like Dale yesterday was talking a lot about seven things we need to do to prevent Alzheimer's. And I bet if we look, you just reminded me of this. I bet if we look at all those seven things, they're the same things you do to prevent cancer, to prevent heart yes. problems, to prevent menopause symptoms. You know, it's it, at some point we're going to Diabetes. have to diabetes, uh, uh, co bad COVID outcomes, like at some point, we're going to have to start taking responsibility for our health and understand that lifestyle is the key to everything. So where do you go when you hit that moment where you've been given this horrific diagnosis? How do you go from the fear of that moment into empowerment and, and seeing that there's so many aspects of your lifestyle that need to change? Oh, Mindy, you hit it on the head, that fear and that urgency. And learning, you know, I just turned 40. I thought I was healthy. It was non-smokers lung cancer. So something I never would have expected. And the first place that I went, which I'm embarrassed to admit, is I'm going to die well. I'm going to listen to my doctors when they t say I'm terminal. I will be terminal. And my one goal was to make Brad proud of me and my doctors proud of me by dying mm -hmm. well. And then God, wow. that only lasted for about five days. I was diagnosed on a Monday that weekend. We went off. I started reading all my cancer books, you know, what's out there. And I realized some people do survive. And I think that if anybody could survive, I could do it. And I'm, I have a little too much self-esteem that way, maybe. But I decided I know my body better than any of my doctors do. I know how I feel better than any scan. And I'm just going to focus on that try to live a good life during however much time I have left. I could be hit by a car tomorrow. And that became my goal, my quality of life. I wasn't trying, oh, maybe deep down, I was hoping for a little cancer outcome. But really what I was hoping for was a good quality life. And I've had that. And that's the most important thing. But those books that I was reading is what brought up how a dietary change is very often the first thing that happens in people with radical remissions or unexpected yeah. uh, improvements. Dr. Kate, uh, Kelly Turner talks about this in her book, Radical Remission. So I was like, okay, yeah. from now on, that weekend, the first weekend after my diagnosis, I decided not to put anything into my body that wasn't actively healing. And at the wow. time, we had just moved from Hong Kong, which had very different uh, access to food, definitely no access mm. to the clean meats. And we mm -hmm. still found a way to deal with that, even if dealing with that was my first 24-hour fast after I made that decision. 
And then the following week, sending Brad out, running around Hong Kong, looking for all the organic produce, anything that he could find that I could find a study on in PubMed that had actually shown it either cures cancer in the uh, Petri dish or increases your immune system or you know anything that was documented, this is healing. Yeah. I was just going to say, you know how usually you go on a ketogenic diet, you got to kind of like ease into it. I mean, like she just 20, 20, she just stopped eating. Like she was just like, hey, this is important. I'm going to do this. So she's just like a, uh, yeah, like and a force. One of the reasons that I'm so grateful to the severity of my cancer, because I would never have gone to such lengths to change my lifestyle if it weren't life and death and it wasn't immediate. Yeah. And I know for some people it can be triggering and it's never a comment on or judgment that you're responsible for your cancer. We live in a world that sets that up and it's not any individual's fault, but it also provides the hope if you're interested that it can be within your control, but certainly yeah. no judgment to anybody who chooses not to go that path. Justine, you bring up a, an interesting point because uh, as I've helped coach people over the years uh, from a, a variety of chronic conditions, I have found that the more severe the condition, the more willing the person is to make a change. And yeah. um, there became a moment in my clinical practice where I only would take the severe cases because if people were just kind of wanting to dip their toe in, I'm like, there's, there's the world will send you too many mixed messages. You're going to find too many reasons why you can't do the difficult. But when you have a, a death date that is facing you, it, you know, staring you in the face, you will do anything. And one of the things, one of the things I learned in walking this journey with this patient of mine, Lanny, was that I was going to live every day as if I did have a cancer diagnosis. Like, why don't I ask myself every single day, what would you do tomorrow if you were given that diagnosis? And I have to tell you, at this particular moment in my life, I wouldn't change anything. I, I feel like I'm very much living every day as if I was so serious about my health that I could overturn a cancer diagnosis. And I feel like it, it is a gift that you got on one level that ev all of us could learn from. Oh, that's yeah. such a beautiful sentiment. Yeah, and I, honestly, I just, it's one of the things that we just sort of talk about privately all the time is just this normalization of what we're eating, right? It's like, right. well, how come... I mean, I know fast food is convenient, but it's like, how did we ever get to this place how where we're just like we? filling our bodies with like garbage, right? It's uh, it's yeah. so sad. And so acceptable is, is what yeah. it is. Like that now you have an eating disorder if you're only eating healthful Yeah, foods. exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. And that, we're going to actually give it a name. They have like a new name orthorexia. for it. Yeah. I'm a proud yeah. orthorectic. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, when I travel around the country, I always, when I'm in airports and I'm watching the stress people are uh, under, I'm watching the foods they're eating, I, I, it breaks my heart. And I think, like, why don't more, more people have cancer? Why don't more people realize that if they change the way they ate, they would, they would think different, they would sleep different, they would feel different? Like, where, to your point, Brad, when did we get off that path? I think yeah. we just assume food is food and we don't know that it either is going to build disease or build health. I have no idea how we got where the awareness yeah. on food got so bad. Yeah. And you can see it, though, over the last 70 years because it tracks with all these chronic diseases like diabetes, Alzheimer's or type 3 diabetes, cancer. They're all going up as our food production and system is going way down. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. So this, again, is one of the reasons I got so excited about fasting. And the fun part of this story that I get to tell, and I, I, don't, I don't think I've actually... No, I told it in Fast Like a Girl. I put it in the end notes. It was a really important story for me to put out there. And that was that um, a month before Lanny passed, maybe a month or two before this patient that I had walked this journey with, before she passed, she actually asked me about fasting. And she said, what do you know about fasting? And it was about that time that Dr. Osumi's work that was coming out on, on autophagy, and we were learning that in a fasted state, the cells repaired the, themselves. And I remember turning to her and saying, um, I don't know anything about fasting, but I'm going to find out for you. Wow. And then origin story. Two, <laughs> yeah. Right. And then two months later, she passed and it propelled me to figure this part of the of the puzzle out because she had done everything. She had changed the way she ate. She had changed the, the beauty products. She had totally handled her stress like she had done everything. She had gone to every alternative doctor. She literally turned like three months into 11 years. But one thing that we Man. didn't do was fasting. So talk a little bit about where fasting fits in to the cancer journey, because it's something I've never been completely able to answer for myself. Wow. So I had no idea on this at the beginning until I ran across Dr. Walter Longo's research out of oh, USC. Yeah. And he focused originally on longevity, but the cancer science has become incredible that if you fast three days before you start your chemo, it's more effective before radiation. And that's when I really discovered the power of it because I yeah. had two rounds of brain storage radiation. Sorry. And no, both those good. rounds caused good. some aphasia from my brain injury, <laughs> which you're hearing right. now. But two rounds for two tumors each in Hong Kong, same hospital, same radiologist. The first round, I was just beginning my cancer journey and I was still eating healthy. I went in and it was devastating. It was three weeks on the couch, sweating, crying, vomiting. Wow. Couldn't work, obviously. The next session, six months later, less than six months, I went in again, walked home from the hospital on a Friday, went back to work on a Monday, felt amazing. And the only difference is the second time I fasted, water fasted, three days before and about a day after, and it was profound. And sometimes yeah. I worry that it was, you know, made my radiation so effective that that's why I have this brain injury now, the brain radiation necrosis. Um, and oh, honestly, they, did, they didn't need as much. Exactly. And really, yeah. most people don't live as long as I do after having this radio surgery. Um, people just didn't know enough about it. But now more and more people are living long enough to get it. And so the science is coming out. And candidly, the fact that I am as functional as I am, my neuro-oncologist told me just at my last uh, session that if he showed my MRIs to 10 different doctors, all 10 would say I'm a vegetable. I shouldn't be able to walk or talk. And this was right after I'd come back from a solo trip to Indonesia to get my yoga teacher training. Um, yeah, so I do have some Crazy. dysfunction, but it just shows that your scans, your doctors, they don't know everything. And I believe yeah. that my fasting, my stress reduction techniques are what causes this uh, neuroplasticity where my mind can still function, even if it looks like mush in the scans. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think this is just like a good time to throw in, like your viewers are all familiar probably with the ketogenic diet and, and fasting. So. And that basically the reason that this works for cancer patients is the idea that cancers more than other cells want glucose. 
So the higher your blood glucose is, I mean, you're basically feeding your cancer cells. So obviously you can't completely cut the glucose out of your system, but if you can go on a ketogenic diet or fast, especially, you're basically taking away a lot of the fuel sources for cancer. And that that's the background. That's the science behind it. And your listeners know that ketosis, the state of t- ketosis is not the same as the ketogenic diet, eating bacon, meat. It can be fasting. Yeah. It can be reached so many different ways. And it's that ketosis that's so healing. Yeah. I actually think the best door into ketosis is fasting. I think that's the, like, and then use food to, to, to that food window to actually fuel yourself and use yeah. your fasting window to tap into the ketogenic energy system. And then you're getting the best of both worlds. So that's the way I like. And, and maybe your eating window is only an hour long. So you're getting more ketones. You're allowing yourself to get more ketones. Mm-hmm. But what I've noticed that a lot of people did in the ketogenic movement is that they wanted to up, like to your point, like, up the, the bacon, up all the ba- all the the harmful fats, which is not great. All and lower all the carbs. We still need some carbs, and that particular diet wasn't the end all be all. They needed if we just use the fasting window to get ketones, and then use the eating window to fuel ourselves. Now we could marry two beautiful uh, healing strategies together. So that that's I don't know if you have any thoughts on that for cancer, but I have found that that's the best way just in general for humans. It's been the best way for me. And Brad fasts with me. We do 44 hours water fasting every week, much more once a month. Um, and it's the best thing to get us into ketosis. I also, and I don't advocate this, was plant-based during my year of healing just because of the foods I could get in Hong Kong. Um, so a lot of those good carbs, I was able to keep my ketones up. Uh, and the real reason that fasting, or sorry, a state of ketosis works so well, Brad, you can explain uh, how the fasting works, that it actually strengthens your healthy cells. Oh, yeah. Um, this, um, uh, yeah, but basically what happened to Maggie when she got her radiation is this, um, the, when, you, when you fast, your normal cells sort of go into like a sort of slightly protective state, like a little bit of a hibernet, hibernating type. Uh, They're just like, hey, there's no fuel out here. I got to kind of like lock down and just sort of protect myself. Cancer cells doesn't appear to have the ability to do that. They're still trying to take up as much glucose as possible. They're out there scavenging up everything. So if you're fasting and then you introduce a drug or radiation, your cancer cells are basically leaving the door wide open to this therapy and your healthy cells have kind of closed themselves off. So the therapies oh. become much more effective. That's basically, I think, is that what you're after? Yeah, I've never heard that. That's, yeah. yeah. Go That's ahead. I never heard it explained that. Yeah. yeah. Love that. Yeah. And then to your point, I think there are so many different ways of eating that depend on a person's genetics, epigenetics, lifestyle, disease state, all of that, that can be healing. But one thing that is almost universally, unless you have a very strong um, reason against it, is fasting. Because it yeah. doesn't matter how you get there, you still have that healing state. So I've teamed up with Tony Horton. Do you know Tony Horton? He was the creator of P90X, one of the most revolutionary at-home fitness programs. And we created together a new fitness program called Power Sync 60. And it is literally, this program's never been done. It is a revolutionary 60-day program for both men and women. So here's why I want you to join us is that we literally 
created PowerSync 60 with you in mind. So it doesn't matter if you're a cycling woman, a postmenopausal woman, or a man. One of the things I brought to Tony was that when we work out, we have to think about our hormones. And he had never done that in the millions of workouts that he's created in his lifetime. We also included a free bonus meal plan and a customized tailor way you can eat right for yourself. Also, of course, we put some fasting in there and it was a beautiful meeting of the minds. So I, it, this is like a passion project that I'm so excited to share with you. And in order to get it, all you got to do is visit drmindy.org and use the code PS60PELS. So PS60 and then my last name, PELS, P-E-L-Z, to get 20% off. And you get lifetime access to the program. So that's drmindy.org and you use the code PS60PELS to join all of us. I'm actually doing this myself right now. So come join me, my community on this incredible journey. I am so proud to bring this to you. A question I get a lot is, is fasting appropriate for all cancers? And I know Na- Dr. Nation, and I have talked a little bit about this, but how, how do we know if your cancer is the one that fasting will work for? So, and this is still being studied, so I want to say that what we're talking about isn't completely determined, but 70 to 90% of late-stage cancers are glycolytic in nature. They need glucose, and so they're going to be benefited by not having the glucose available. And there are other things that you know cancer can eat, notably glutamine, which would also be reduced by fasting. Um, the things that really would not help with fasting is if you're pregnant, if you maybe have been anorexic in the past, your doctors can let you know whether it's appropriate for you or not. But the mistake that happens so often is that doctors still don't understand that cachexia, the state of muscle loss that is responsible for so many cancer deaths, is not a reason not to fast because fasting is being a- coming to show that it can um, actually reverse cachexia. Yeah, will definitely prevent and possibly reverse is what the latest studies say. Yeah. Wow, because wow. it keeps it holds on to your fat, it stores your you know it keeps your fat, and that's the that's what you're actually losing when you have cachexia. You're just shedding all your fat. No, cachexia uh, is yeah. when you shed your muscles. Oh, sorry, the other <laughs> way. Yes, sorry, the other way. Yeah. So it, can, it preserves your muscle. So yeah. this actually ties into a really beautiful. Uh, thought that I've had in in just teaching the world to fast, I get so much um, pushback that fasting breaks muscle down. And one of the things that I really try to emphasize to people is that maybe in the fasted moment, you it is breaking muscle down. But what that means, let's dive a little deeper into what that means. It means that it is getting rid of the stored sugar that is inside that muscle so it can clean the muscle up so it can be a stronger, more efficient muscle. And then when you bring food back into the equation, especially protein, you now could stimulate mTOR in a positive way and you could actually build that muscle stronger. And, the, and this is what we're seeing with all these menopause women in our in my um, community is that yes we put them in fasted states yes the body gets rid of stored sugar it improves itself and then we put the right foods back into the equation it builds itself stronger so you it, it ties into something that you said maggie that's really interesting to me is that you're no longer on a plant-based diet to me, in order to build muscle, we got to have protein. And I can't get the protein that I need 
on a plant-based diet. But from a cancer standpoint, why, why animal not plant-based? Absolutely. And again, this is different for everyone. And anybody out there who's affected by cancer needs to talk to their metabolically informed physician. But there's been a lot of yeah. research, especially five Walter Longo. That was well said. Well said. <laughs> I don't want it. I don't want anybody to miss that. You got to make sure. That- <laughs> yes. Don't take it from me. I'm N1. Yeah. Yeah. Or just your general oncologist, right? They're going to not know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. What's a metabolic, just before we go any further, what's a metabolically informed oncologist? How do we know if we have one? They're hard to find, but if you mention the metabolic theory of cancer, they should understand if they know that PET scans work to diagnose your cancer because your cancer is eating more sugar and therefore sugar maybe isn't something you should eat. If they're not offering you orange juice and insure before your chemo, (laughs) that would be a clue. But there are places out there to find them. I have a list on my site. Dr. Nisha has some on her terrain.network site. Um, Care Oncology, Meekin Metabolic Care, they're out there and they're becoming more and more of them. Um, Not to mention the Charlie Foundation has a great resource for dietitians uh, who practice this and understand that keto and fasting are both safe and effective for a lot of different states. Yeah. That's what I was going to add is to, uh, if you can just find an oncologist that will work with a nutritionist, that is usually, mm. you know, if you find an, on- mm. if your oncologist is just like, ah, nutrition, yeah, that doesn't mean anything, you're going to have, you, you're probably going to have some trouble. But if you have an oncologist that can work with a nutritionist, a lot of times they're sort of bound by their standard of care as to what they can prescribe, but they can actually shuttle you to a, 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 a nutritionist that will work with you, you know, at the same time that that can be really helpful. So See, yeah, it could awesome. be sometimes, uh, yeah, it could sometimes not even be the oncologist themselves, but just sort of this, you know, sort of team of people. Yeah. Awesome. But to your point about protein and cancers, it was Dr. Walter Longo who's done a lot of research on that. And partly because glutamine is a fuel for cancer, recommends a lower protein diet. Now, obviously, if you're on chemo, if you've had surgery, you need that protein to be able to mm-hmm. repair your body, get good, clean protein. But it's an individual choice, also based on genetics, epigenetics. And for me, plant-based was what worked for me at the time. And since then, we've moved to the U.S. where we have access to non-factory-raised meats. And it's great to be able to get back into that. But for me, I found that the factory-raised meat that I had access to in Hong Kong was so much more dangerous and less healing to Mm -hmm. my body. And I just wanted to get the things that I knew were going to help me. Um, one thing, especially for people with a disease of unregulated growth, like cancer, is we have to be careful about the hormones in um, animals and especially in dairy right. that is there to braise, you know, these giant animals to be even bigger. We don't necessarily need that for our cancer. Yeah. Uh, so I just want to make sure we don't lose what you just said, because you, you bring up a brilliant point, which is commercial meat with hormones and toxins and antibiotics pumped into it is not a health food. So what I heard you say is you made a choice that you didn't have access to clean meat. So plant-based was a better option. So you could avoid all those toxins. But then once you had, you had access to clean meats is what I call them. You started to bring some of them back in. Is that, did I hear that right? And when I talk plant-based, it's never like full vegan. I was eating organic pasture-raised eggs, wild-caught fish. It just meant that about 90 to 95% of my calories came from plants, um, which is a traditional definition. It's not a vegan diet. 
Um, and again, it, it can differ for so many people, but you have to find what resonates for you and what you feel is healing because that's what's going to work ultimately. I mean, the yeah. placebo effect reigns supreme in all of this. <laughs> Definitely. Where do toxins fit into this? Because I know, again, with Lanny, she went home and like scanned. She, there, she found an app on her phone, like scanned all her products, like literally went crazy in one weekend and got rid of all the toxins. Is that, oh, it sounds like that was a familiar story. Almost as important as diet. That Diet was the first thing I cleaned up. My water was the next thing. And then I had to get rid of all my cosmetics. We chose different detergents. We have an air purifier, water purifier. I stopped using the cleaner on my yoga mat. <laughs> well, I, ingredients. I just say, like, there's this one day that Maggie came home and this was like, she was just like, did you know that the skin is the biggest organ in your body? <laughs> <laughs> and then we had like a week of just like, this is gone. This is gone. This is gone. This is, it was just like, yeah. I mean, I was like, I mean, I was like, I was like, can I even use my to- old toothpaste? Anymore? Yeah. I would just like everything in our house, just like in our bathroom was just like gone and replaced. <laughs> so now our philosophy is if you're not going to put it in your mouth, don't put it on your skin. I, I taught my daughter that I, you know, my 23 uh, year old daughter that when I started to realize beauty products were so toxic, I'm like, just, just easiest thing. Look at it and say, would I eat it? If I'm not going to eat it, put it back. Um, y- you know, everything with a natural ingredient, you should be able to eat. You have no problem. The, yeah. the other thing about this skin, I'm, I don't know if you all know this is that there is a connection from the microbiome of the skin to the microbiome of the gut. And one of the things that really concerned me during the pandemic was all the hand sanitizers we were putting on our hands. Yeah. And people weren't realizing that it was actually leading to leaky gut syndrome and imbalances, gut dysbiosis situations, because those two organs, the skin and the gut, are constantly talking to each yeah. other. So, yeah. Scott, tell me a little bit about like, Gut-wise, did you have to do any changes to your gut? Because the microbiome is a big part of our immunity. How did you dive into that? This has been a challenge for me recently just because of my survivorship issues with the chemo I went through and the radiation and all of that, where I developed SIBO or small intestinal bacteria overgrowth. And that really did wake me up into the importance of your gut for detoxifying, obviously, for just keeping things moving and for just being a part of your beautiful body. Like these little microbes are, are there part of your ecosystem and I want to support that. And so it's been a work in progress for me about three years now, continually focusing on that. But I do think that the foods that I'm eating now, no grains, no dairy, all of that is definitely insupportant. And again, the fact that I am as functional and happy as I am right now with all these issues, I think there's a lot of uh, what would you say that comes from your gut that can influence your mood? Oh, 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 a thousand <laughs> yeah. percent, a yeah. thousand percent, definitely. <laughs> so, okay, and then what about sleep? That's the other one that I, as I, you know, as I've been journeying through my menopause years, I just am starting to prioritize sleep so much more. You know, I, I used to wear it as a badge of honor that I could get away with less sleep. And now I'm like, everybody needs to go home at eight o'clock so I can go to sleep. Where, where was sleep on the healing journey for you? Oh, you're my person. <laughs> right? I know. <laughs> That's right. So I'm very blessed yeah. that I never had a problem sleeping. Uh, maybe a little insomnia. But our culture, like you say, it's like, oh my gosh, not being able to sleep is a badge of honor. Get back to work and all of that. So for me, now that I have the brain injury, sleep is more critical than ever. Like nothing heals my brain more than fasting and sleep. But it's still hard because of the cultural 
way that we were raised yeah. that like I feel lazy if I get more than 10 hours. And just thank God for Brad, who's always supportive, who knows that if I don't sleep enough, then I'm not going to talk or I'm not going to be as functional. And that's just my brain injury. That doesn't even represent what other people are experiencing. Because when you sleep is when your cells are turning over, they're getting healthier, your immune system is at work. So critical. But just like yeah. food and trying to push away the societal idea of like, eating crap. <laughs> we have to push right. away the idea that slaying awake is is a good thing. We need to prioritize our health. Yeah. Do do you find people give you more grace because they know you had a diagnosis or they like, "Oh yeah, of course you need to go home and sleep. Of course you're eating that way." Like, do you get a free pass, a social it pass? Definitely was for the eating. Like when I was in Hong Kong during my healing, we went through, you know, the Chinese New Year with the mooncakes and everybody at the office wanting to to really comfort me and to give me something and we're just used to giving food for comfort and it was very easy for me to say oh no i can't do this because of my cancer treatment and right. i know it's much much harder for people to be able to turn down in a loving way foods that are really poisonous uh, without hurting somebody's feelings and so i use it as an excuse as much as i could and brad i don't know how you get away with it now because he eats the same way i do without the diagnosis <laughs> oh yeah just to have like maybe a nibble and just thank you so much or just I'll, I'll have it later right just set it aside yeah. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> you know here's what happens with food and i think it's so interesting as a couple like being able to see that she gets the free pass and you might not because when we put some some bad food out there or their drinks out there when somebody makes a stand for not eating in that way because they want to be healthy it's like a it's like a mirror back to the person who served you the food that what they're eating is unhealthy. Yeah. And so in order to make themselves feel better, they need you to eat. They need you to stay up late. They need you to participate in these behaviors because otherwise yeah. it, there's this internal reflection that happens that makes people feel bad when you're making a stance for your health. That yeah. we've got to change. So yeah. True. And like we try to be as non-judgmental as possible. But it's really hard right. for people not to take it as a judgment that I just want to have this lifestyle. You can have your lifestyle, no judgment. Uh, yeah, it's it's hard. Yeah. I mean, we have I have family members that have seen what Maggie's gone through. Then I started doing the ketogenic diet. They've seen me and my lifestyle changes. I've lost like 50 pounds, you know, and wow. it's like I still can't get these people that are close to me to adopt this lifestyle. It's just like so frustrating but it's also okay like we have to accept them yeah of course still accept and them. An yeah. yeah they're my family but yeah it's just being it an is frustrating because yeah. you're like i can i can help you right or i can yeah. put you in touch with someone that can help you right yeah but the but very yeah. Hard. thing is we just sadly do not go out period um, yes and so we'll cook for our friends and family when they're at home and then they get to eat the delicious foods that we eat and we don't give gifts of food or candy or anything like yeah. that because these are people that we love and we don't want to poison them. And, you know, if they yeah. want to do it themselves, that's fine, but not for us. I drag us to a seafood restaurant every once in a while. That's about it. Yeah. That's about I was all you can say, do. Talk about not eating out because I'll tell you that I had a really interesting experience with a patient who ate out all the time and we ran her Dutch test and her toxic estrogen was so high. And I tried to break down where it might be coming from. And then she explained to me that she and her husband ate out like five days a week. It was a part of their social behavior. And it was going to be very difficult for her to not eat out. And my response to her was, if you don't get this under control, your husband's not going to have a wife to go eat out with. So I do, and my husband and I do the same thing. We don't eat out 
as much. So just so people understand, why don't you eat out? What do you, it, What is it that you can't get in a restaurant that you get at home? Anything healing for me. Like if somebody else is preparing it, it's going to be prepared with seed oils. And for those who don't listen to enough Mindy, listen to more Mindy and you'll understand the dangers <laughs> of that. You don't know Thank completely you. what's in it, what's organic. Uh, so yeah, we just make it ourselves and then we feel safe. It's good. It comes from a source that we believe yeah. in. I mean, you've heard Ben talk and, you know, uh, uh, Ben Bidazadi or um, yep. um, obviously um, Miriam Kalamian. We've talked with her a lot. And it's like, if you are extremely vigilant and you go out to eat and you tell your waiter that I'm allergic to like these 10 things or whatever, I mean, they're, y- y- and you're like, just give me, you know, the lettuce. You can make it happen. You can make it work. But at some point for us, it became a lot of work. And then you also brought this up earlier. It's like you're kind of sitting there in the restaurant watching other people eat things that aren't healthy for them. That's kind of like a, you know, kind of brings you down a little bit. And it's so it's like what we have done is actually tried to search out restaurants that have uh, organic base or, you know, that are just very proud of, you know, like where they've sourced their food from. And then you can sit down in the restaurant and actually know that you're getting something healthy and that the people around you are also eating something healthy so you don't have that drag. So that's one of the yeah. ways that – and when you're on the road, that's kind of what you have to do, right? It's like, yeah. yeah. We go grocery shopping and make a salad at home. I remember yeah. the first time in Hong Kong I went out and I ordered a Caesar salad with no croutons, no car- parmesan, no sauce, no dressing. And it was uh, right. romaine. And I was like, I'm not going out anymore. <laughs> this isn't any fun. Yeah. yeah. And then they bring the the bread basket yeah. and they bring you the dessert menu. And like, you're, there's a lot of willpower that's got to happen when yeah. people are bringing you all the, the possible dangerous foods. So yeah. I, that's, yeah. that's absolutely why we just, unless it's a, a farm to table organic restaurant, yeah. we would prefer to make food at home. Yeah. Talk a, talk a little bit about um, I feel like this is the elephant in the women's health room. And it's that our bodies, from a nervous system standpoint, from a hormone standpoint, need a lot more rest than a male body. And the more we push through and have what we, what Libby Weaver coined the term rushing woman syndrome, the more that we are rushing and stressing out, the weaker our immune system, the worse our health becomes. And we are completely different than men in that when you look at us hormonally. So did you have to reorganize and prioritize downtime, learn to say no? I mean, how do you, how do you take the rushing woman out of a diagnosis, a diagnosis like that? It's so hard because we do feel responsible for everything. And, you know, in a way that we're blessed that I didn't have children to be look after, but I still felt like I had to look after Brad, after my coworkers, everybody. Definitely has to look after me. No, but that's the thing. I found that I do have support. Right. <laughs> and Brad is there. And I need his constant encouragement to say, like, no, take a minute. Don't do this. Prioritize yourself. But it would have been very, very difficult for me if I didn't have somebody from the outside giving me perspective on that. And I know a lot of cancer sufferers do not have that. And I just, I constantly try to share what I have saying, prioritize yourself. If you have this diagnosis, your body is saying, you've got to pay more attention to me, got to put me first. And hopefully somebody doesn't need a stage four terminal diagnosis to get that message. But it's it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just from a caregiver perspective, I would just add, uh, it's, it's easy to kind of sort of wrap yourself up in what's going on and just try to remember to focus on what are the needs of like your significant other or whoever you're helping. Right. It's just, 
Yeah. You know, it's like as soon as she started having these brain issues and it was like we were like the best thing for her sleep. That's where, you know, dead tissues yeah. get flushed out of your brain. You you pretty much have to be asleep for this kind of, you know, that's the most efficient way. And I was just like, you have a, a free pass to sleep as much yeah. as you possibly can. So um, yeah. it's just prioritizing these things. And that can be hard, obviously, if you have to, you know, have other uh, responsibilities, kids or a, a job. I mean, you're juggling. Yeah. But um, you have to do the best you yeah. can. What would you tell somebody who gets a diagnosis of cancer? Where's the first place they go? How do you because that's got it. That moment has to be really scary. And how do you go from that to into mo- a motivated place where you can actually start to unwind it? The very first thing I think somebody needs is to let go of the urgency. When you first find out you have cancer mm. inside of you, I did. All I wanted was get it out, burn it. You know, I'm luckily I wasn't uh, operable, but do whatever you can do to get it out. And then I have to realize, no, this mm. cancer has been inside me for years years it's Mm. been developing and so i don't need a doctor to tell me like do it now i need to take a minute take a breath and figure out what's right for me use your doctors for their wonderful knowledge to help inform you but ultimately you know your body best and what resonates for you back to the placebo effect is going to be what's most helpful uh and so if people can just feel empowered get that sense of agency and know that the statistics may not apply to them I think that's number right. one. And then that's going to lead them to the diet, to the exercise, to taking care of their body and all of that. And and where do you feel like, you know, we have we have traditional cancer treatment and we have a more natural cancer treatment. Um, I, you know, I see that there tends to be this division where it's like some people are like, well, I'm going to go the more traditional, so I won't do the natural. And the other people with the natural say, well, I'm going to do the natural. I won't do the traditional. Is there a way where we can integrate both because the, there are benefits to it all? Exactly. And there is this divide, just like there is in diet, where people consider it's one or the other. And when I was first diagnosed, I was deeply adherent to allopathic medicine, super Western and I was living in Hong Kong where TCM, traditional Chinese medicine, is medicine, fortunately. And I slowly realized that what's been healing to people for the last 3,000 years maybe can have something relevant to this allopathic medicine we've had for the last 70 years. And so there's a little bit that you can take from both. And I hate the idea that you have to go the traditional route or alternative. So many of the metabolic treatments that we talk about are uh, complementary. They are integrative. Right. And people can choose from this wonderful palette that we have of surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, mistletoe, uh, you know, stress reduction, diet, all of this. Figure out what's going to work for them. Work with the doctor who supports that. And I think that's the the quickest, easiest path to healing. Yeah, I, I like I'd like to think of it as it's an. Ad- there's so many things you can do in addition to what your doctor may have given you, um, and and yet I feel like what I've seen so much with can- patients who have had cancer is that the options they're given are very limited, and it's sort of you have this choice and this is the only choice. But what I hear you saying is, yes, that is a choice. Plus, here are all the other choices that you can be embarking upon. Yes, and these metabolic therapies like fasting, diet, exercise, age bot, these are not going to hurt you, <laughs> the adjunct right. therapies. So why not take advantage of them to accelerate your uh, conventional healing? And in our documentary, yeah. we do talk to a lot of people who were stage four terminal like me, chose not to take the palliative treatment, which is they knew wouldn't cure them. I knew that mine wouldn't cure me. 
and these are people who are documented in medical journals as case studies. So they were some of the first that we talked to. And their stories of healing have been incredible. But it doesn't mean that we're promoting that as the only way to go. Really, I feel right. that traditional plus metabolic, the combination is stronger than both of them individually. Yeah. Uh, so well said. And are there any tests that you would say, hey, everybody needs to run these tests every year to make sure that cancer isn't brewing? Yeah. Dr. Nisha, who you've spoken to before, has a wonderful yeah. list of lab tests. I love doing those. Some people like me are lucky enough to have cancer tumor markers that track their mm. cancer and cancer progression. So I rely on those. I still get my scans several times a year. But for me, very, very personally, I don't rely on my scans at all because, again, with my MRI, you would look at me and think I'm a vegetable and I'm pretty right. much fine. I mean, I'm not great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'm pretty much fine. And if I yeah. believed the scans more than I believe myself, I don't think I'd be doing it as well. Is that was that hard to overcome when I mean, we have such a society where when the doctor sits up here and tells you how it's going to go down, you in order for you to believe in yourself, especially if you've been given a bad yeah. prognosis, you have to go against a culture. Yeah. I mean, like I, I, I have so much admiration. I think of everything potentially that you did. It's overcoming that that uh, uh, patriarchal authority telling you this is the way it's going to go down that might be the hardest yes yeah um but yeah so actually while you're talking they just reminded us yeah. of the story that uh when maggie was in hong kong and, and she basically had this uh radiation done for the um for the, the tumors that were in her brain her next couple of scans started to sh look like there might be more activity more cancer in her brain but we were very lucky to have run across a, um, uh, a presentation by Dr. Thomas Seyfried where he talked about the fact that if you have a, a radiation to your brain, it will very often kill so many cells. And it, what you get end up with is actually brain radiation necrosis. But on a scan, it's almost indetectable from cancer. Yeah, on, mm. a, on a regular MRI, it's indetectable from cancer. So we were just really lucky that we ran across this presentation from him. And then, so when we went in and the, we heard this from her doctor, he was like, hey, it looks like you got more cancer. Like, we got to go in and do more radiation. Oh, and then the other thing is that if you do more radiation on top of that, it's actually worse. So we were very luckily just sort of prepared to push back. And uh, I, it was much harder than I thought it was going to be, actually. But, you know, with all these various men telling me all the sides of the research, <laughs> I'm very lucky that I have this deep-seated arrogance. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. I'm, I know better. And it's not always been a good character uh, trait. It's but gotten it really you in trouble a few here. times. Huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It really did. Wow. And to this day, I love, I love oh. matching wits with my doctors. <laughs> I was going to say, and so I just let finish up that story. So we, he finally referred us to another specialist who did a, like a, a brain scan of hers. This specialist confirmed that it was not more cancer, that it was this brain radiation necrosis. We went back to him because we're like, hey, he's got more cancer patients. He wants to know this, right? Killed me if I followed more radiation. Most most likely, yeah. And so we go to him and we're just like, you know, just like, hey, you might want to know this. We saw this, you know, and he just was sort of like. Oh, he said, oh, I usually work with a bigger team at my old hospital. And that was oh. it. Like, no, nothing said wow. to the 
Yeah. It's just you, you, you know, you just want the doctor to be like, oh man, like this is great. This is good information. Amazing. I can help yeah. other people, right? Or anything yeah. like that, right? Or thank you. Yeah. yeah. You, you didn't even say thank you. I tried to kill you. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, right. Uh, yeah. Right. Well, they're, I mean, unfortunately, they're not trained to, to show what they don't know. They're trained to be the most certain person in the world, in the room. So, uh, you know, that I, I, I can, I can understand that. that. Yeah. Let's, let's finish up on this. You guys are doing something really cool with your summit. Um, I, I had a lovely conversation with you, Maggie, and was really excited to bring what I know about metabolic flexibility and fasting to it. And I can't tell you how excited I am for the panel that I get to sit on uh, with all those fasting uh, pioneers. So talk a little bit about what it is and why you're doing it. Because education is, I think, so important. And I don't know about you all, but I feel like when the pandemic hit, all of a sudden we forgot about cancer. Like we stopped talking about cancer. We started talking about like immune system and COVID. And like, I, I, I keep wondering like, hey, are we going to come back to this conversation that cancers are growing? The so talk a little bit. Cause of death yeah. <laughs> still. So we made right. this documentary, Cancer Revolution, with incredible uh, scientists, practitioners, and it explains the why of the metabolic theory of cancer and why your genes aren't your destiny and your lifestyle choices can make such a big difference. But it's just about the why. The science of the treatments, the how is advancing so mm. quickly. And we're not qualified. We're reporters. So we're not here to tell you how to treat your cancer. But we wanted to bring together the wonderful healers who are there for that. People like you, Mindy, and your mm, presentation you. is incredible. And so thank we do you. have a panel on fasting, including folks like Walter Longo, uh, Jason Fung, you, uh, a couple others in New Zealand, which will be wonderful. Talking about other nutritional ways of treating cancer or adjunct therapies like mm -hmm. keto or just nutritional dense diet, uh, off-label drugs, supplements is something that I use. And while we have to be extremely mm. evidence-based in the yes. documentary, I'm going a little bit wider, which is the cancer emotional support in the summit also. So this will be Amazing. in September 21 to 26. And everyone who joins will get access to the world premiere. Uh, and we'd love for your community to take advantage of a coupon code PELS20 to get 20% off the summit. And Beautiful. we do have to charge for the summit for the platform costs and all of that. But anybody can sign up to get access to the documentary itself for just a donation basis because that costs us a little bit less money. So would it... would would you watch it if you have cancer or would you watch it if you want to prevent cancer or both? Both. Anybody who has any you know, fear of cancer, someone in their life who has been affected, if they're affected themselves. But we also have a really large percentage of practitioners, doctors, oncologists who are joining to learn more because this information just isn't out there. And it's so easy for me to joke about these doctors who don't know about it and try to act confident. Nobody goes into medicine not wanting to help people. Their right. hands just get tied by the system. And that's so frustrating. So we're here to like help empower the practitioners and clinicians themselves, but mostly the cancer patients because yeah. you might yeah. know my philosophy on that. It's the patient that takes precedence. Yeah, as I say, the for both takes the, control. Yeah, yeah. both the ahead, summit bro. and the the documentary itself are geared for patients. So. And just to uh, give you a little bit more idea that the documentary itself is about the metabolic theory of cancer, um, which, as we mentioned, a lot of people don't know that, you know, the genetic theory of cancer is just a theory. So it's um, and it's 
we haven't really gotten as far as we would have liked um, using it as the basis for the theory of cancer. It's so. a pretty weak theory. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, we. I feel like actually we probably should have started this whole conversation with the the theory has changed. It is not a cancer is not a, a, a disease of your genes. It's a metabolic dysfunction. Can you just, you know, just I don't want to lose that because I think if you're listening to this and you've never heard that, that is ginormous reframe. So talk a little yeah. bit about why it's a metabolic disease. You've alluded a, a bit to it. Yeah. Um the main the main thing that starts we talk about the the scientific history of how this you know uh, back in the early 1900s before we really even knew about much about genes or DNA for sure you know we were just studying cancer from a very um, sort of more top down approach and oh, this guy Otto Warburg the scientist found that cancer cells were consuming more glucose and using fermentation instead of respiration. It's like when you're using your uh, your mitochondria normally use oxygen when you're making energy and they only turn to fermentation when you run out of oxygen. That's pretty much the only time you use it. And so this metabolic idea of cancer is just that since cancer is using so much more glucose, maybe that, that had something to do with the way cancer formed. Well, yeah, and we found that definitely genetic alterations play a role in cancer. You look at a lot of cancers, they have these alterations. But the difference between the metabolic theory is that it starts with damage to your mitochondria and your metabolism, yeah, and that causes yes. the DNA changes as a downstream yeah. effect. It does not yeah. mean that your DNA is what's going to cause you to have cancer. It goes the other yeah. way around is what we're finding. And again, metabolic theory is just a theory, and there's wonderful other theories evolving, like the atavistic model, things like that. And so we're just opening this up, saying we need to do more research, and we can't assume yeah. That we've finished cancer while 600,000 people are dying a day of it. We have right. to continue to research because cancer is evolving and cancer yeah. science should evolve. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> right. And actually, I, you, you have me thinking that I, I don't, for those of us that have been in the biohacking world for some time, um, that mitochondria has become the target, right? Everybody wants to get at the mitochondria. And I actually think where that obsession with the mitochondria came from is from Thomas Seyfried and the, and the, this idea that cancer starts in the mitochondria, not in the nucleus where the DNA is at. And mm -hmm. once people started to open up that conversation, we started to see, oh my gosh, we got to heal these mitochondria to, to heal from everything, not just cancer. I, the whole biohacking world emerged at that yeah. moment. And yet I think we lost sight that it started in the cancer movement. And that, you know, is a gift we all got from exploring Thomas Seyfried's work. Yeah. One, like, just sort of interesting fact on that, in that thought, is that there's a couple of cells in your body that almost exclusively use respiration. They almost never turn to fermentation. And that's the muscles in your heart and the neurons in your brain. Those cells almost never get cancer. It's extremely rare. If you get heart cancer or brain cancer, it's not those cells it's the supporting cells around those cells. So wow. just very interesting that the cells that are just constantly using respiration almost never get cancer. Yeah. And crazy. I think it just shows that the root of all these chronic diseases, like I believe cancer can be a chronic disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, they all spring from this metabolism issues that yeah. have become endemic in our current society. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Well, thank you. I hope this is going to help uh, millions. You know, I, again, 
I wanted to really come at this conversation from two angles. How do we help the person who got the diagnosis? And how do we all wake up and start to prevent the diagnosis? So I'm just, I'm really grateful for your work. And of course, I have to finish with my last question, since Maggie, you're already ready for it. Uh, tell me what your self-love practice is and what's your superpower. I, have a, uh, I, have a, I think I know your superpower, but I'm curious what <laughs> you think. I'll give that away. I already talked about it. It's just the fact yeah. that I believe in myself so deeply. Nobody else matters when it comes to Amazing. Me. <laughs> and yeah, my self-practice is stress reduction is huge for me, yoga, meditation, my healing foods, and fasting I could not function without. Yeah, amen to that. Okay, Brad, you get to answer that too. Uh, my little secret is I like to take a little bit of me time in the morning, just maybe that first hour of the day or 30 minutes, whatever I can get. And um, sometimes I meditate, sometimes I just have a cup of coffee, but just having that you know, extra half hour or hour before I have to take on the world really helps me out. Um, That's awesome. Superpower, I think I'll just go with support. I just feel like... He's my real superpower. Just support. Probably just because, oh. I, yeah, Maggie says it to me all the time, but I just, um, you know, just, I don't... It took a team, I think, to kind of get through what she oh, yeah. what she's been through. So um, I, I think that that's probably it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. I got chills on that one. Well, thank you to both of you. I'm so excited for the summit. I can't wait to get on this panel with Dr. Fung and Dr. Longo. So I appreciate the opportunity. And just, just keep shouting it from the rooftops. We are all more powerful together yeah. when we bring this message. So I really, really appreciate what you're up to. Thank you for your participation in this, but for everything you do. You've taught me so much and the community so much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank Thanks, you. Mindy. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me in today's episode. I love bringing thoughtful discussions about all things health to you. If you enjoyed it, we'd love to know about it. So please leave us a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what your biggest takeaway is.